Hello, and welcome to this episode in our podcast sequence on the Power and the People unit. This time we're going to talk about the Chartists. But before we can actually talk about the Chartists, we really need to do an episode just on the background to it and the idea of the Great Reform Act. The Great Reform Act has been held up for decades as a major leap forward for the idea of representation and the idea of granting power to the people. But is that actually accurate? That's what we're going to have a look at today. A reminder that the focus in this little sequence of the Power and the People unit, once you get past the civil wars of the 1600s, where the question of the primacy of the monarch, the power of the king, is settled, and it's settled pretty finely by chopping the head off the king, once you get past that point, you're then into talking about representation, the idea of who is represented, whose voices are heard, who gets a say. Bubbling away in the background of this period is a tension. A tension between two two different ideas of government. And this tension is still in play today. Broadly speaking, it's the idea of left-wing versus right-wing. The idea of self-help or the idea of government intervention. Someone who believed in self-help believes that the market can sort itself out. People can pick themselves up by their bootstraps. They can go out and find work. If there is no work in their local area, they can get on their bike and move. People who believe in government intervention believe that people sometimes, through no fault of their own, can find themselves in difficult circumstances, and the government should step in to help them, and also step in to help businesses and communities as required. It is not really our place as historians to judge who is right and who is wrong. But we do need to be aware of the practical impacts of those two schools of thought when we are talking about how people react to certain things in this period. For example, broadly speaking, members of the Tory party, which over time will mutate into today's Conservative party, would generally fall into the self-help category. Whereas the other major political party in this period, the Whigs, which one day will grow into what became the Liberal Party before its spectacular demise in the early 1900s, would be more on the government intervention side. That's in the House of Commons. The House of Lords is almost completely dominated by Tories. And that's important when it comes to whether the reform bills get through and various other things that we'll talk about. So we're talking very much here about elections in the 1800s. We're talking about who ends up in Parliament. And so we need to understand what an election is like. Well, today, in any election, whether it be a council election, whether it be a general election, whether it be a referendum, the actual idea is the same. The voter goes to a polling station where their name is checked off a list. They're given a voting slip. They go into a booth where they privately make a mark on a piece of paper showing their preference. The piece of paper is folded and then placed into a ballot box, taken away somewhere centrally where it is counted. It's very different in the 1800s. In the 1800s, Elections are carried out at public hustings, where the MPs stand up and make their case, and then everybody who wants to vote for someone is required to publicly state their allegiance. I vote for him, I vote for him, I vote for him. 
The problem with that is you can be seen. That allows for bribery and intimidation. And intimidation can be physical intimidation. There are records of people being beaten up at hustings. But it can also be financial. Because the other issue here is that a landowner in a particular area may well want a particular candidate to win. In order to be able to vote, you probably have to be a property owner or a property renter. That means your landlord, or the person who owns the land on which your house is built, can rock up and can say, I want you to vote for that person, or you're out. And you have no choice but to comply, because he can see who it is you vote for. So you can see the idea of a public ballot as opposed to a secret ballot makes fair elections very difficult. The next issue that you're dealing with is that being a member of parliament is an unpaid position. Now, from the point of view of the time, this is perfectly acceptable because it's something the gentleman should be doing and a gentleman should have his own income. But that means that somebody who is poor and has to work for a living can never be an MP because they cannot afford to forego their wages. That means that nobody from the working class is going to be represented in Parliament. Next, there is the issue of limited suffrage. Not everybody can vote. Suffrage is the term meaning the ability to vote. So not everyone has suffrage. Not everyone has the vote. There are property qualifications. You can only vote if you own a property or if you rent a property over a certain value or if you have a certain level of earnings. This can be seen in what were called the potwalloper boroughs, where in order to go and vote, you had to go and throw your keys into a pot to show that you actually had a door that could lock, you owned some property. The other issue is what's called rotten boroughs. And a rotten borough is exactly what it sounds like. It's a borough that returns a couple of MPs, but it is more or less owned outright by the landowner. How does this happen? Well... The constituency boundaries, the area in which the voters in a given area live, were drawn up a long time ago. They were drawn up before the Industrial Revolution. So these areas, which may once have had a large population of farming folk, are now depopulated because those people have moved to the cities. And so there may be a rotten borough which returns two members of parliament but has no voters. So the landowner can basically just say, I want that person and that person to go, and they go. Or there could be one or two constituents there who are very easy to intimidate or persuade or bribe or simply ask to vote the way you want them to. Meanwhile, the cities, which have suddenly grown due to the industry, have no MPs. Because when the boundaries were drawn up, those places did not exist at all. Once again, you can see here that it is the working classes, the poor, who are being disenfranchised, who are being robbed of their opportunity to be represented. And this is one of the things that's driving dissatisfaction and disquiet with the current electoral system. It all comes to a head somewhat with Peterloo. And Peterloo is a name given to the massacre at St Peter's Field in Manchester. Approximately 100,000 men, women and children, mainly drawn from the working class, have gathered together to protest about their lack of representation. They've gathered to hear a man called Henry Hunt speak. Henry Hunt is known as the orator, for he gives fantastic speeches. The magistrates are frightened of the side of the crowd. The magistrates of 
Manchester want to break the crowd up, and they have an excuse. There is a warrant out for the arrest of Henry Hunt. So they contact the local militia, and they ask them to go in and arrest him. The problem is, the militia have been drinking. What should be a relatively simple police task becomes a full-on cavalry charge into the middle of these men, women and children. At least 11 people are killed and well over 400 are injured, mainly from sabre cuts, as the militia lay about them with their blades as they ride through the crowd. The despair and anger is palpable. It runs around the country. It causes a huge amount of pressure, which leads to the Great Reform Act. The Great Reform Act is not the first attempt to get some form of electoral reform through Parliament. The new Whig government makes two previous attempts, two reform bills, both of which are defeated in the Lords, because the Lords is dominated by the Tory landowners. And again, representation. Whose benefit are they there for? They're there for the benefit of their own class. They're there for the benefit of the natural ruling class. And so they resist any attempt for any reform. Finally, the third reform bill is presented, and it is presented at a time when there are riots in Bristol, Nottingham, Derby, industrial centres. At the same time, the Captain Swing riots are sweeping through this countryside. This is like the Luddite attacks on the machinery in the factories, but this is attacks on the new agricultural machinery in the countryside. It cannot be pinned down. Captain Swing, like Ned Ludd, is a phantom. He's somebody who doesn't exist. All these different groups are organising themselves and sending out orders under the name of Captain Swing. So nothing can be done to stop them because there is no central organisation. This is raising the spectre of a revolution. And remember, this is only 40 years after the French Revolution, only 50 years after the American Revolution. There is a fear there is a feeling that revolution is in the air, that Britain may go the same way as the former colonies and of France. Therefore, to buy off these people, to reduce the pressure, the government agrees to pass a reform bill, and they call it the Great Reform Act. How great is it? What does it do? Well, it introduces 67 new constituencies, mainly in the industrial areas. It removes 56 constituencies, where nobody lives there anymore. It reduces 31 boroughs to one MP from two. It adds around 65,000 new voters. And it does this by removing some property qualifications and changing others so that people who rent anything with a value of £10 a year or more are eligible to vote. What does it not do? Well, it refers only to male suffrage. There is no mention of female suffrage whatsoever. So that is now excluded from the law. Also, it removes some people from the property qualifications. So some people who could vote before have now lost their vote. Does it do enough? No, it certainly doesn't. And that is what gives rise to the People's Charter. In the next episode, we'll pick up what the People's Charter is and what the people wanted. 
But for this one, which is purely background, you'll only be expected to use this information in support of your discussion of the charters. So from this, I want you to think about what elections were like in the 1800s. I want you to think about what happened at Peterloo and how that raised pressure for some action from the government. And the final thing you need to think about is what was in the Great Reform Act and the ways in which it did not go far enough. Thank you for listening. Good luck in your exams.